From the Earth to the Moon, Jules Verne, Chapter 16, The Columbiad. Had the casting succeeded? They were reduced to mere conjecture. There was indeed every reason to expect success, since the mold has absorbed the entire mass of the molten metal. Still, some considerable time must elapse before they could arrive at any certainty upon the matter. The patience of the members of the gun club was sorely tried during this period of time, but they could do nothing. J.T. Maston escaped roasting by a miracle. Fifteen days after the casting, an immense column of smoke was still rising in the open sky, and the ground burned the soles of the feet within a radius of two hundred feet round the summit of Stones Hill. It was impossible to approach nearer. All they could do was to wait with what patience they might have. "'Here we are at the 10th of August,' exclaimed J.T. Maston one morning. "'Only four months to the 1st of December. We shall never be ready in time.' Barbicane said nothing, but his silence covered serious irritation. However, daily observations revealed a certain change going on in the state of the ground. About the 15th of August, the vapors ejected had sensibly diminished in intensity and thickness. Some days afterward, the earth exhaled only a slight puff of smoke, the last breath of the monster enclosed within its circle of stone. Little by little, the belt of heat contracted, until, on the 22nd of August, Barbicane, his colleagues, and the engineer were enabled to set foot on the iron sheet which lay level upon the summit of Stones Hill. At last, exclaimed the president of the gun club, with an immense sigh of relief. The work was resumed the next day. They proceeded at once to extract the interior mold for the purpose of cleaning out the boring of the piece. Pickaxes and boring irons were set to work without intermission. The clay and sandy soils had acquired extreme hardness under the action of the heat, but by the aid of the machines, the rubbish, on being dug out, was rapidly carted away on railway wagons. And such was the ardor of the work, so persuasive the arguments of Barbicane's dollars, that by the 3rd of September, all traces of the mold had entirely disappeared. Immediately, the operation of boring was commenced, and by the aid of powerful machines, a few weeks later, the inner surface of the immense tube had been rendered perfectly cylindrical, and the bore of the piece had acquired a thorough polish. At length, on the 22nd of September, less than a twelvemonth after Barbicane's original proposition, the enormous weapon, accurately bored and exactly vertically pointed, was ready for work. There was only the moon now to wait for, and they were pretty sure that she'd not fail in the rendezvous. The ecstasy of J.T. Maston knew no bounds, and he narrowly escaped a frightful fall while staring down the tube. But for the strong hand of Colonel Blomsbury, the worthy secretary, like a modern Aristratus, would have found his death in the depths of the Columbiad. The cannon was then finished. There was no possible doubt as to its perfection. So on the 6th of October, Captain Nicholl opened an account between himself and President Barbicane, in which he debited himself to the latter in the sum of two thousand dollars. 
One may believe that the captain's wrath was increased to its highest point and must have made him seriously ill. However, he had still three bets of three, four, and five thousand dollars respectively, and if he gained two out of these, his position would not be very bad. But the money question did not enter into his calculations. It was the success of his rival in casting a cannon against which iron plates sixty feet thick would have been ineffectual that dealt him a terrible blow. After the 23rd of September, the enclosure of Stones Hill was thrown open to the public, and it will be easily imagined what was the concourse of visitors to this spot. There was an incessant flow of people to and from Tampa Town in this place, which resembled a procession, or rather, in fact, a pilgrimage. It was already clear to be seen that on the day of the experiment itself, the aggregate of spectators would be counted by millions, for they were already arriving from all parts of the earth upon this narrow strip of promontory. Europe was emigrating to America. Up to that time, however, it must be confessed, the curiosity of the numerous comers was but scantily gratified. Most had counted upon witnessing the spectacle of the casting, and they were treated to nothing but smoke. This was sorry food for hungry eyes, but Barbicane would admit no one to that operation. Then ensued grumbling, discontent, murmurs. They blamed the president, taxed him with dictatorial conduct. His proceedings were declared un-American. There was very nearly a riot round Stones Hill, but Barbicane remained inflexible. When, however, the Columbiad was entirely finished, this state of closed doors could no longer be maintained. Besides, it would have been bad taste, and even imprudence, to affront the public feeling. Barbicane, therefore, opened the enclosure to all comers. But true to his practical disposition, he determined to coin money out of the public curiosity. It was something indeed to be able to contemplate this immense Columbiad. But to descend into its depths, this seemed to the Americans the ne plus ultra of earthly felicity. Consequently, there was not one curious spectator who was not willing to give himself the treat of visiting the interior of this great metallic abyss. Baskets suspended from the steam cranes permitted them to satisfy their curiosity. There was a perfect mania. Women, children, old men, all made it a point of duty to penetrate the mysteries of the colossal gun. The fare for the descent was fixed at five dollars per head, and despite this high charge, during the two months which preceded the experiment, the influx of visitors enabled the gun club to pocket nearly five hundred thousand dollars. It's needless to say that the first visitors of the Columbiad were the members of the gun club. This privilege was justly reserved for that illustrious body. The ceremony took place on the 25th of September. A basket of honor took down the president, J.T. Maston, Major Elphinstone, General Morgan, Colonel Blomsbury, and other members of the club, to the number of ten in all. How hot it was at the bottom of that long tube of metal! They were half suffocated. But what delight! What ecstasy! A table had been laid with six covers on the massive stone which formed the bottom of the Columbiad and lighted by a jet of electric light resembling that of day itself. Numerous exquisite dishes, which seemed to descend from heaven, 
were placed successively before the guests, and the richest wines of France flowed in profusion during this splendid repast, served 900 feet beneath the surface of the earth. The festival was animated, not to say somewhat noisy. Toasts flew backward and forward. They drank to the earth and to her satellite, to the gun club, the union, the moon, Diana, Phoebe, Celine, the peaceful courier of the night. All the hurrahs carried upward upon the sonorous waves of the immense acoustic tube arrived with the sound of thunder at its mouth, and the multitude ranged around Stones Hill heartily united their shouts with those of the ten revelers hidden from view at the bottom of the gigantic Columbiad. J.T. Maston was no longer master of himself. Whether he shouted or gesticulated, ate or drank most, would be a difficult matter to determine. At all events, he would not have given his place up for an empire, not even if the cannon, loaded, primed, and fired at that very moment, were to blow him in pieces into the planetary world. Chapter 17 A Telegraphic Dispatch The great works undertaken by the gun club had now virtually come to an end, and two months still remained before the day for the discharge of the shot to the moon. To the general impatience, these two months appeared as long as years. Hitherto, the smallest details of the operation had been daily chronicled by the journals, which the public devoured with eager eyes. Just at this moment, a circumstance, the most unexpected, the most extraordinary and incredible, occurred to rouse afresh their panting spirits and to throw every mind into a state of the most violent excitement. One day, the 30th of September, at 3.47 p.m., a telegram, transmitted by cable from Valencia, Ireland, to Newfoundland and the American mainland, arrived at the address of President Barbicane. The president tore open the envelope, read the dispatch, and despite his remarkable powers of self-control, his lips turned pale and his eyes grew dim on reading the 20 words of this telegram. Here is the text of the dispatch, which figures now in the archives of the Gun Club. France, Paris, 30 September, 4 a.m. Barbicane, Tampa Town, Florida, United States. Substitute for your spherical shell a cylindro-conical projectile. I shall go inside, shall arrive by steamer, Atlanta. Michael Ardan. Chapter 18. The Passenger of the Atlanta If this astounding news, instead of flying through the electric wires, had simply arrived by post in the ordinary sealed envelope, Barbicane would not have hesitated a moment. He would have held his tongue about it, both as a measure of prudence and in order not to have to reconsider his plans. This telegram might be a cover for some jest, especially as it came from a Frenchman, what human being would ever have conceived the idea of such a journey? And, if such a person really existed, he must be an idiot, whom one would shut up in a lunatic ward rather than within the walls of the projectile. The contents of the dispatch, however, speedily became known, for the telegraphic officials possessed but little discretion, and Michael Ardane's proposition ran at once throughout the several states of the Union.
Barbicane had therefore no further motives for keeping silence. Consequently, he called together such of his colleagues as were at that moment in Tampa Town, and without any expression of his own opinions, simply read to them the laconic text itself. It was received with every possible variety of expressions of doubt, incredulity, and derision from everyone, with the exception of J.T. Maston, who exclaimed, It's a grand idea, however! When Barbicane originally proposed to send a shot to the moon, everyone looked upon the enterprise as simple and practicable enough, a mere question of gunnery. But when a person, professing to be a reasonable being, offered to take passage within the projectile, the whole thing became a farce, or in plainer language, a humbug. One question, however, remained. Did such a being exist? This telegram flashed across the depths of the Atlantic. The designation of the vessel on board which he was to take his passage, the date assigned for his speedy arrival, all combined to impart a certain character of reality to the proposal. They must get some clearer notion of the matter. Scattered groups of inquirers, at length, condensed themselves into a compact crowd, which made straight for the residence of President Barbicane. That worthy individual was keeping quiet with the intention of watching events as they arose. But he'd forgotten to take into account the public impatience, and it was with no pleasant countenance that he watched the population of Tampa Town gathering under his windows. The murmurs and vociferations below presently obliged him to appear. He came forward, therefore, and on silence being procured, a citizen put point-blank to him the following question. Is the person mentioned in the telegram, under the name of Michael Ardan, on his way here, yes or no? Gentlemen, replied Barbicane, I know no more than you do. We must know, roared the impatient voices. Time will show, calmly replied the president. Time has no business to keep a whole country in suspense, replied the orator. Have you altered the plans of the projectile according to the request of the telegram? Not yet, gentlemen, but you're right. We must have better information to go by. The telegraph must complete its information. To the telegraph, roared the crowd. Barbicane descended and heading the immense assemblage, led the way to the telegraph office. A few minutes later, a telegram was dispatched to the secretary of the underwriters at Liverpool, requesting answers to the following queries. About the ship Atlanta, when did she leave Europe? Had she on board a Frenchman named Michael Ardan? Two hours afterward, Barbicane received information too exact to leave room for the smallest remaining doubt. The steamer Atlanta from Liverpool put to sea on the 2nd of October bound for Tampa Town, having on board a Frenchman born on the list of passengers by the name of Michael Ardan. That very evening he wrote to the house of Breadwill and Company, requesting them to suspend the casting of the projectile until the receipts of further orders. On the 10th of October, at 9 a.m., the semaphores of the Bahama Canal signaled a thick smoke on the horizon. Two hours later, a large steamer exchanged signals with them. The name of the Atlanta flew at once over Tampa Town. At four o'clock, the English vessel entered the Bay of Espiritu Santo. 
At five, it crossed the passage of Hillsborough Bay at full steam. At six, she cast anchor at Port Tampa. The anchor had scarcely caught the sandy bottom when 500 boats surrounded the Atlanta, and the steamer was taken by assault. Barbicane was the first to set foot on deck, and in a voice of which he vainly tried to conceal the emotion, called Michael Ardan. Here, replied an individual perched on the poop. Barbicane, with arms crossed, looked fixedly at the passenger of the Atlanta. He was a man of about 42 years of age, of large build, but slightly round-shouldered. His massive head momentarily shook a shock of reddish hair, which resembled a lion's mane. His face was short with a broad forehead, and furnished with a mustache as bristly as a cat's, and little patches of yellowish whiskers upon full cheeks. Round, wildish eyes, slightly nearsighted, completed a physiognomy essentially feline. His nose was firmly shaped, his mouth particularly sweet in expression, high forehead, intelligent and furrowed with wrinkles like a newly plowed field. The body was powerfully developed and firmly fixed upon long legs. Muscular arms and a general air of decision gave him the appearance of a hardy, jolly companion. He was dressed in a suit of ample dimensions, loose neckerchief, open shirt collar, disclosing a robust neck. His cuffs were invariably unbuttoned, through which appeared a pair of red hands. On the bridge of the steamer, in the midst of the crowd, he bustled to and fro, never still for a moment, dragging his anchors, as the sailors say, gesticulating, making free with everybody, biting his nails with nervous avidity. He was one of those originals which nature sometimes invents in the freak of a moment, and of which she then breaks the mold. Among other peculiarities, this curiosity gave himself out for a sublime ignoramus, like Shakespeare, and professed supreme contempt for all scientific men. Those fellows, as he called them, are only fit to mark the points while we play the game. He was, in fact, a thorough bohemian, adventurous, but not an adventurer, a harebrained fellow, a kind of Icarus, only possessing relays of wings. For the rest, he was ever in scrapes, ending invariably by falling on his feet, like those little figures which they sell for children's toys. In a few words, his motto was, I have my opinions, and the love of the impossible constituted his ruling passion. Such was the passenger of the Atlanta, always excitable, as if boiling under the action of some internal fire by the character of his physical organization. If ever two individuals offered a striking contrast to each other, these were certainly Michel Ardan and the Yankee Barbicane, both, moreover, being equally enterprising and daring, each in his own way. The scrutiny which the president of the gun club had instituted regarding this new rival was quickly interrupted by the shouts and hurrahs of the crowd. The cries became at last so uproarious, and the popular enthusiasm assumed so personal a form, that Michel Ardan, after having shaken hands some thousands of times, at the imminent risk of leaving his fingers behind him, was fain at last to make a bolt for his cabin. Barbicane followed him without uttering a word. "'You are Barbicane, I suppose,' said Michel Ardan, in a tone of voice in which he would have addressed 
a friend of twenty years standing. Yes, replied the president of the gun club. All right. How do you do, Barbicane? How are you getting on? Pretty well? That's right. So, said Barbicane, without further preliminary, you're quite determined to go. Quite decided. Nothing will stop you. Nothing. Have you modified your projectile according to my telegram? I waited for your arrival, but, asked Barbicane again, have you carefully reflected? Reflected? Have I any time to spare? I find an opportunity of making a tour in the moon, and I mean to profit by it. There is the whole gist of the matter. Barbicane looked hard at this man, who spoke so lightly of his project, with such complete absence of anxiety. But at least, he said, you have some plans, some means of carrying your project into execution. Excellent, my dear Barbicane. Only permit me to offer one remark. My wish is to tell my story once for all, to everybody, and then have done with it. Then there'll be no need for recapitulation. So if you have no objection, assemble your friends, colleagues, the whole town, all Florida, all America, if you like, and tomorrow I shall be ready to explain my plans and answer any objections, whatever, that may be advanced. You may rest assured I shall wait without stirring. Will that suit you? All right, replied Barbicane. So saying, the president left the cabin and informed the crowd of the proposal of Michel Ardan. His words were received with clappings of hands and shouts of joy. They had removed all difficulties. Tomorrow, every one would contemplate at his ease this European hero. However, some of the spectators, more infatuated than the rest, would not leave the deck of the Atlanta. They passed the night on board. Among others, J.T. Maston got his hook fixed in the combing of the poop, and it pretty nearly required the capstan to get it out again. He's a hero, a hero, he cried, a theme of which he was never tired of ringing the changes, and we're only like weak, silly women compared with this European. As to the president, after having suggested to the visitors it was time to retire, he re-entered the passenger's cabin and remained there till the bell of the steamer made at midnight. But then the two rivals in popularity shook hands heartily and parted on terms of intimate friendship.